This morning's sermon starts out with a, a reference to an illustration that dates back to 1975. And I know some of the younger folks here this morning might say, oh, here goes, here goes that old creature going to some old references. Let me assure you, I was one years old when this came out. <laughs> 1975, the Statler brothers. You remember the Statler brothers? Yes. None of the, only two of them were actually brothers. None of them were named Statler. And they drew their name from a tissue box company. So whatever that means. But they released an album in 1975 called Holy Bible, Old Testament. My mom used to play it all the time in our Volkswagen bus as we cruised down the road. Uh, there's a track on that album called The Song of Solomon. Now, before you get too excited here, the song is not associated with the book that's oftentimes associated with that particular title, but rather focuses more broadly on Solomon's wisdom. It begins with the retelling of that encounter that King Solomon has that's in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 3. An encounter in which the Lord visits him in a dream and asks him what he can give to this young ruler. And then grants him wisdom to govern, which is the thing that Solomon asked for. And there's a, there's a lesson in there about what it means to be a wisdom seeker and the humility that's required in that. But the song is a rather selective reading of the king's life. And the chorus itself declares... Didn't Solomon have it all together? Didn't Solomon lead his people well? Didn't Solomon have it all together? Don't his words ring clearly as a bell? Of course, in many ways, Solomon's words do still ring clearly as a bell, even today. But in some of his actions, he acted more like a real ding-dong. <laughs> yes, I actually wrote that sentence in my sermon. The Statler brothers may sing otherwise, but the scriptures record that Solomon didn't have it all together. And this one, this one, this person, this king is known as one of the wisest among us. And maybe you can relate here this morning. Not so much the wisdom part, but to having it or not having it all together. Some here may even go as far and say that you don't have anything together. That your entire life is a story of not having it together one point and one time after another if that sounds like you today here's the thing there's good news and that good news comes to us in romans chapter 8 specifically here in this last section but the entire chapter as we've heard over the last couple of weeks the gospel narratives include an episode where jesus invites his disciples to stand watch he wants them to stay awake while he prays and readies himself for his coming arrest his fake trials and crucifixion, which is very much real, the crucifixion part. They, of course, fall asleep. They didn't have it all together either. Even those earliest Jesus followers didn't have it all together. The same episode as Mark 14 was referenced last week, where Paul draws upon it in verse 15 of Romans 8, uh, the Jesus prayer, right? Abba, Father. Here in Romans 8, the prayer is included to serve as confirmation of our adoption, a witness to the Spirit's activity and the Spirit's claim on each one of us. And it's being shared as an encouragement to a community that is struggling. Again, a community that doesn't have it all together, but to know that they're not alone, they're not abandoned. And Paul has already noted the suffering of the present time. We hear that in verse 18 of chapter eight, conveying this through the image of labor pains. And we talked about that imagery. But present suffering can have a serious effect on one's fortitude, or certainly their lack thereof. In fact, Paul will go on to highlight some of the biggest culprits that may give rise to a sense of feeling abandoned, alone, 
and weak. And he does that in the second part of verse 35. And that list includes some real doozies. Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. If you are wondering if God is faithful and for you, that God's love in Christ is real and extended to you, that the Spirit is present within you and amongst you as a community, and that's what you're going through? How does that confirm any of the things that you believe about what God is up to? That can, of course, suck the life right out of you. It can seemingly snatch the faith from you, can squash the hope that's within you, and even take the words you hope to pray right from your very lips before they're even spoken. Contemporary writers have produced, of course, a wealth of titles that serve as instruction on prayer. And perhaps they could help us at this point. And not too few of these teach methods for being not only more faithful and effective, but also for being efficient. I think author Anne Lamott is probably the most efficient in her words for prayer, where she says that she has observed, here are the two best prayers I know. Help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Later she'd release a, a book in which help and thanks would be joined with the word wow. But as helpful as this all might be, there are times and seasons when we don't have words, when our prayer life is missing those words, that our experience defies any discovery, elucidation, where we can't make sense of the moment, we can't articulate what needs to be said, and when we do, what is said isn't really what should be said. As short as the sample prayer might be from Lamont and others, we find ourselves coming up even shorter. I actually titled this section in the sermon, I have little uh, titles here that I don't necessarily share during the, the sermon itself, but I tell this one, I'm weak and my prayer life sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Some might say this is not having it all together. This is a symptom of that. Still others would say, this is my life. This is what day-to-day -day par for the course looks like. And knowing that the people of God, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, are called to be a royal and a holy priesthood. That we stand at that intersection between heaven and earth, praying, groaning even, for that coming salvation of the world. Whereas N.T. Wright frames this as a calling for the church to be the people who are in answer or in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. They're patiently waiting, but not in the John Mayer waiting on the world to change kind of way but rather people who are actually praying and moving towards, taking action. To not inhabit this calling represents not only a loss of words for us, not only a loss of voice, but also a failure of vocation. In this light, of course, condemning voices and thoughts can certainly enter and reduce us to tatters rather quickly. That is, of course, if this whole project was up to us alone. And that's where the good news comes in here at this, at this place. So hear a different word here this morning. Hear a better word, one that's dripping with that good news. Paul says in verse 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. These groanings echo the groanings of creation. And I love that we are saying already that all creation sings. And here in this worship service, we literally have multiple species who've come together to worship. There's actually a canine, I believe, over in this area here who's joined us for worship this morning. But the Spirit joins with us. It's 
God's ground game embedded and deeply bound up with us in the present struggle. And not just the spirit in verse 26, but Jesus as well in verse 34. Even the Father is present and attentive. We hear that in verse 27, which is a nod to Psalm 44. So not kicked to the curb, but rather rescued, resourced, and supported in, the, in that life of prayer. But what about those fumbled and misplaced words? Well, consider what J.I. Packer and Carolyn Nystrom offer in their book on prayer. They say, God fixes our prayers on the way up. Fixes our prayers on the way up. If he does not answer the prayer we made, he will answer the prayer we should have made. I just love that, that picture. Picture of a God who is faithful even when we mess it up. And should there be any doubts at this point that God is for those who haven't got it all together, Paul is going to fill in any remaining gaps and will do so with some of the most memorable lines in the New Testament, if not in all of Scripture. Verse 28 is probably one of the most well-loved. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And though this seems rather straightforward, though that sentence seems like, yeah, that makes perfect sense right away, we see quickly that there seems to be a variety of views on what exactly this sentence is saying. You see that in the footnote itself in, in the translation. But let me offer one additional reading that is worth our consideration this morning. It comes from Haley Gornson Jacob in her book, Conform to the Image of His Son, Reconsidering Paul's Theology of Glory in Romans. I know you're excited to run out and read that one, right? <laughs> I Jimmy, wow, that title. Well, Dr. Jacob sees here that the good being done is not for our benefit alone, but that it's done in cooperation between God and the believer on behalf of all things. Of course, the original RSV, so we use the new revised uh, standard version updated edition. The original revised standard version actually captured this idea in their translation of the verse. When they translate it, God works for good with those who love, love him. So Jacob's not coming out of nowhere with this. Continuing this reading into the second part of verse 29, namely this notion of being conformed to the image of the Son, Dr. Jacob asserts here that this is the eternally decreed conclusion to the narrative. It is what believers are purposed to do. So when you hear that sentence, you should perk up instantly and go, oh, this is where this is all moving. This is where this is all headed. This is the goal of salvation. So what exactly are we being saved to? What are we being saved for here? Dr. Jacob says this glory conformed to the image of the sun is the goal of salvation. Instead of attaining some kind of soul exaltation or becoming shiny, which glory can certainly hold that idea, or escaping to a distant world, which oftentimes our thoughts about the afterlife collapse into. This all is for the purpose of extending God's hand of mercy, love, and care to his wider creation. This was humanity's job in the beginning. It will be believers' responsibility and honor in the future. It is God's purpose in calling his people in the present. We are being rescued and returned to our original human vocation. And not to use the word lightly, but rather quite intentionally here, that's the glorious thing. And we don't go it alone. As the old Gaither song goes, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And it goes on to say, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. And so in the midst of the most dire of circumstances, which very much is the tenor of the Old Testament, a people who carry a promise as they travel through dark times, the psalmist cries out, for your sake we are being killed all day long. 
we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And with desperate voice appeals at the end of that psalm to the Lord saying, rise up, come to our help. Deliver us for the sake of thy steadfast love. Paul here must have certainly sensed the moment in which he's writing and what his hearers and readers would be experiencing. Here's the point where N.T. Wright actually calls these hammer blows. And I was like, hammer blows? What does that look like? And if you've been around here long enough, you know that when I wonder a question, I go to the source of sources. I watch the YouTube video. <laughs> so I went on YouTube and I typed in hammer blows. I was like, show me hammer blows. And instantly came up and I posted it out on the church's Facebook pages last week. You can check it out. N.T. Wright used the imagery from a symphony. And they, they had the hammer blows. And I had in my mind, I thought like that little hammer on like the, the bells, like they hit the bells kind of thing. This dude breaks out a giant hammer, like full on like Donkey Kong Mario hammer. And just goes, boom, boom. And that imagery is what Wright sees going on here. I heard another commentator speak about the same text. He didn't use the idea of hammer blows, but instead, talked about how it's that end of a fireworks show where you see that pop, 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 pop. Those giant pops happening. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And that's what's happening here at this place. <laughs> that the proof of the cross, proving God's love, verse 32, no condemnation for those in Jesus. The gospel in miniature in verses 32 and 33. And then this, the steadfast love, the hesed, what the psalmist prays for what the people of God depend on in every generation, God's unbreakable relationship between God and God's people, that God truly will be faithful even when we are not, and especially when we are not. It kind of sounds like what Paul is going to conclude here in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can make the list as long as you want, but it's going to end with nothing can separate us. So you have this great chapter that begins with no condemnation, and it ends with and no separation. Two powerful words for us to hold on in the gospel. There's a pivotal scene in the 1978 film Superman. We're not ready to leave the 70s yet. <laughs> Maybe you remember this. When the hero is revealed to the public in the crash of a helicopter at the headquarters of the Daily Planet, reporter Lois Lane loses her grip and falls from the top of a building on which the copter has crashed. And as she falls, presumably here to her death, she is suddenly rescued by none other than Superman, right, flies up and catches her. It's an incredible moment. And as I was watching it on YouTube, uh, <laughs> I thought the crowd could have been a little bit more lively for what was going on, but that's just a side note about 70s, 70s filming. But it's an incredible moment, and one that raises the question that any gravity-bound person might ask when being held in the arms of a flying superhero for the first time, after they get done shrieking, when told, that this superhero has you? It's the great question we'd ask. And Lois Lane asked it here. You've got me, but who's got you? Who's got you? 
As far as superheroes are concerned, the answer might be very complicated and involved. I'm sure there's a long backstory that involves something strange. But Romans 8 speaks quite plainly and clearly to those living non-fictitious lives. God, in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has us. And does he have us indeed? Which leads Charlotte Getz to conclude here in a devotional that she wrote on this text. She writes, Jesus came to be with you, and he died to be with you. His love for you is fixed, dear one. It is fixed. And boy, do we need that. Boy, do we need that in our own age, in our own day. I heard on a podcast, and I'll, I'll close with this. I heard on a podcast this last week about a, the Guinness Book of World Records. They're talking about how those come to be and whatnot. They talked about that woman, if you remember reading the Book of World Records, maybe you've seen this, with the really long fingernails. You ever remember seeing that, that woman with the really long fingernails that she really grew those out? They measure them, and she has the world record for the longest fingernails. I wonder if that's a spectacle, or she's doing that for personal accolades, or maybe she just wants the world record, right? Like, grow them out. You can't use your hand really anymore. But why would you do that? Well, the person who was being interviewed did research into this, and this is what they found. The woman used to go out every week and have her nails done with her daughter. And her daughter died. And she decided that she'd never do her nails ever again. That's a very real human thing. In her grief, in her struggle, we see the spectacle, right? We see the Book of World Records and we think, wow, that's, that's crazy. You grow your nails out that long, that's what that looks like and whatnot. But there's a very human trait here. It's one that spans very deep and wide within us and amongst us, that we don't have it all together in many, many levels. So perhaps we might take Paul's lead here in verse 38, where he says, For I am convinced, or as the old King James said, I'm persuaded that in our consideration of all that God has accomplished on our behalf in Jesus Christ, we too might be convinced, like Paul, having thought it through, and by the Spirit's transformation and following that, that messianic logic, that Christ's logic, that, that way of seeing the world and thinking about the world with Jesus Christ at the center, that cruciform kind of life, that turning to the one who does have it all together, who holds everything together, in fact, that we too might one day conclude, as Eugene Peterson translates these verses in the message, none of this phases us because Jesus loves us, because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. May that be our experience for each one of us this day and every day forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your great love. And oh, how more the appreciation of that love is seen and felt as we come to this text and we heard of your unfailing, your absolute faithfulness to us, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we throw ourselves to you and your mercy, knowing that that grace has been extended to us long before we even asked, that your love has been proven in Jesus Christ, it's been demonstrated on the cross, even while we were still sinners. So, Lord, we trust you and we pray that you would help us, even in our own day, especially in our own day, to live faithful lives, lives of gratitude to you, the one who has given us all things. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.